only an idiot who does his job. Welcome to Arnie Geddon. I'm Cam Smith. And I'm Tony G. And we are here this week to talk about 2010's The Expendables. Now, Tony, why are we talking about The Expendables? Because this being an Arnold Schwarzenegger podcast, we are going to have to talk about all Arnold Schwarzenegger movies, including Expendables 2 and Expendables 3. Yes. And now the thing is, those two movies, Arnold plays a much larger role. He sure does. But you can't skip this one just to do those two. So we felt we kind of had to do our due diligence and cover the entire spectrum of the Expendables trilogy. And what a treat it was. Yes. So, Tony, what is this film about? Uh, it's hard to say or or very easy to say, depending on your take. Um, it's about Sylvester Stallone playing Barney Ross, who leads a ragtag gang of people. Guys, I guess. Mercenaries? Mercenaries, that's the word I'm looking for. Beret lovers? Uh, that's right. Well, there was a variety of different tactical hats. <laughs> <laughs> and they have to go into a fictional South American country for God knows what reason. Yes. And then leave. Right, because a rogue CIA agent played by Eric Roberts is manipulating like a puppet dictator to start a drug thing <laughs> yeah it was the the kind of plot that you could write in the you know on a long bus ride <laughs> or a short one <laughs> but cam does it work well you know let's let's just rewind a bit because when this movie came out in 2010 it was a big deal for at least those of us who grew up in the 80s like the idea of combining action heroes like all of our favorites like randy kutcher and terry cruz into <laughs> one movie was mind-blowing but no seriously like the idea of seeing Stallone and Jason Statham, and then the heavily marketed Arnold Schwarzenegger and Bruce Willis in one movie seemed very exciting. Very exciting. Now, I don't recall when it came out. Was Schwarzenegger uh, marketed as being in this movie? Or, yes. Or was he a secret cameo? No, they put him in, I believe, the second trailer and then the TV spots. Because I do remember when the trailers first came out, or even before the trailers came out. Yeah. It came out that Sylvester Stallone was making a movie with Jason Statham and Jet Li and yeah. Dolph Lundgren. Uh, at the time, I think it was Forrest Whitaker who was eventually... Uh, taken over by Terry Crews. It was supposed to be, actually, Wesley Snipes, who was having tax problems, and then Forrest Whitaker came in, and then he had to drop out because of a, a, a schedule conflict, and then 50 Cent came on, and then he left. That's right. And I then it was Terry Crews. I had forgotten about 50 Cent, but yeah. I, do, I do remember that. That other great action hero. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea, basically, is, like, this movie was a big deal, as, you know, they were marking it. Before you even saw the movie, how much anticipation did you have for The Expendables? My recollection is having a lot of anticipation for it. Right. Uh, I don't know about you. Uh, I seem to recall it feeling at the time, at least that's how they sold it to me, was that this was going to be re a return to good action movies. That action movies haven't been good for a while, and now they're going to get good again with this movie. It's going to go old school. Right. But then when I think about it, the movies, <laughs> the and especially the action movies leading up to this film, I mean, there was the Bourne movies. Yeah. I can't remember if Casino Royale was before. Or yeah, after it was. This. Yeah, uh, four years earlier. Um, Dark Knight. Right. If you want to go into the superhero movies. Sure. Um, 
Jason Statham was releasing a lot of good stuff at this point. Crank and uh, Transporter films. Good? <laughs> well, <laughs> good enough. Watchable. Watchable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I guess it was maybe more that action movies had gone the way of like shaky cam action. And I think there was a lot of hope that this would be more of that old school like impact action. Where it's coherent setups and payoffs in your action scenes. And and I seem to remember as well that there was also going to be a lot... At least the hope was there was going to be a lot more practical special effects. Right. Less reliance on CG. Definitely. That sort of thing. And I remember being particularly hyped for this movie because just two years earlier, Sylvester Stallone had come back and directed Rambo. Which was, at the time, farewell to that character. And I really liked that movie a lot. And that it told a very grounded character story, but with like action that was like melting your face. Yeah, Sylvester Stallone, I think, had had a bit of a bit of a weak run right. up to that movie. Well, he had uh, Rocky Balboa before that, which That's right. also did well. But. So he he kind of made a bit of a comeback with the the Rocky and Rambo movies, right? And um, but before that, what was he releasing? He was in the desert. I <laughs> I don't know where he was. He was like going straight to video, like with movies like Avenging Angelo. That's right. Yeah. I mean, the only movie I can think of between, uh, you know, Stop or My Mom Will Shoot and Oscar-era Sylvester Stallone right. was maybe Copland that sure. he was any good in. Yeah, but I remember there was that movie Detox, I think got renamed I See You or something like that. Yeah, I, I may have seen that movie at some point. Yeah, and there was that really lousy Get Carter remake. That's right. That's yeah. right. I did see that. That was... Uh, it was lousy. Yes, but I remember being so excited because I was such a big fan of Rambo that it just made sense that Stallone coming back and uh, co-writing and directing The Expendables, how could you ever go wrong? Like, this was going to be everything I could hope for. I mean, Rambo is perhaps personified by that scene where he takes that giant gun and just explodes that whole group of guys in the back of a truck in yeah. that film. And I was just like, I want to see The Expendables be that for two hours straight. Yeah, I mean, that scene had an excellent reloading scene, which yes. I, I still remember to this day. Um, but yeah, I remember being stoked about The Expendables being made. Yeah. And I remember a lot of my friends who are into the same kinds of movies that I am mm -hmm. uh, were also stoked about it being released. And I remember, though, I got a little nervous because they released like maybe like a three-minute trailer that was played maybe at like CinemaCon, which is a, a, uh, like a, um, an industry event in Las Vegas where they show cinema owners. Uh, footage of upcoming movies that they might want to book in their theaters or something it was an event one of those events and the footage leaked out and it looked really bad like it looked like bad straight to video quality and i got really nervous because i liked rambo so much and i was like oh no they bombed this one because there was a lot of talk i remember at the time about how the budget was only 80 million but you had all these superstars and so there was a lot of rumblings that this movie was going to be really really cheap looking because all the money had gone to the cast but, you know, it turned out not to be the case. You and I actually saw it together, as I recall, in 2010, in, in, you know, late August. That's right. That's right. I'd forgotten that, but you've jogged my memory. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what was your take of it at the time? I remember thinking it was uh, pretty good. There was parts of it I didn't like. I And, you know, we'll go, we'll go over them a little bit more here. But I do remember thinking... You know, there is a little bit too much CG in here. I would have liked to have seen more squibs and actual explosions and practical effects. Uh, I remember at the time, as I was here, baffled by some of the dialogue <laughs> and the humor in the movie. Right. But but on the whole, I thought it was uh, certainly a throwback to old action movies. Yeah. 
if not a particularly good one. Maybe not the A-level action movies, which I think is what people were hoping for. Mm. But I really appreciated what the movie uh, was trying to do and what it accomplished. Yeah, I remember watching it too and really enjoying just the experience of watching it. Watching these group of actors just banter on screen and then blow people away. Like, that was enough for me. And I think a lot of my feelings of apathy towards this movie came more from sitting through the two sequels, which I don't recall disliking. But I think there was just a sense of diminishing returns of seeing sort of the same thing three times in a row. That by the third time, I was like, you know, these Expendables movies just aren't my thing anymore. Yeah, I remember that as well. I mean, it was it's it's pretty tough to have a uh, have the same anticipation for Expendables two and Expendables three. I mean, this was really one of the uh, great action ensemble casts that we hadn't seen for a long time. Yeah, yeah, and I remember you know the second one they kind of got me hyped with like Van Damme, who was supposed to be in this movie actually in the Dolph Lundgren role, but he said he didn't want to do the movie because there was not enough character development. Yes, I I, I, th- I remember seeing that at the yeah. time, actually. But, uh, like, the announcement of, like, Van Damme in the second one got me kind of hyped. And the the larger role, obviously, for Arnold Schwarzenegger. But by the time we got to the third one where they are like, announcing Kelsey Grammer and Antonio Banderas, I was like, eh. <laughs> well, you know, I, I've never put Fraser as one of the great action stars of our time. <laughs> He's up next to uh, 50 Cent, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, we just revisited this movie and... Of course, we were tuning into it primarily, I think, to look at Arnold Schwarzenegger, but we'll leave him till a little later because we can only stretch that coverage for so long. What was your experience watching the movie this time? You know, it was great revisiting it. I I don't recall if I'd watched it again. I probably have at some point, but uh, I hadn't seen it for probably eight or nine years, so it was really good to go back and watch it again. It's uh, It's a reliable action flick. Even though I didn't have the same hype going into it uh, as I did the first time, because of course I've already seen it now, I thought that it was still pretty entertaining. How about you? Yeah, you know, I think I appreciated this movie more this time. I think the first time, I just enjoyed the experience. I think I kind of appreciated what this movie is more this time. I mean, it's not very good. I think we can agree on that. It's not, in terms of, you know, writing uh, a lot of the acting, in terms of... Just general story construction. It's pretty, uh, pretty much a mess, even, even... Or, or just very you know connect the dots type stuff. Um, but I really like that this movie is just this very stripped down action movie that just moves completely on attitude and like visceral gore and ballistics. I never felt like I was sitting there just watching the movie waste my time, and when it was doing weird things. They were weird things that I was genuinely absorbed by, like Mickey Rourke, who we'll get to later. Yeah, this movie came out with a purpose, and yeah. that purpose was maybe not the most noble or intellectual purpose we've ever seen, but I right. think it accomplished it. Yeah. So, why don't we get into sort of the, the meat of the movie? Um, you know, this movie is uniting a lot of the great action heroes. This story, however is a little generic. Do do you think that was an issue? Do you think this movie should have aspired for more in that regard? I don't think so. I think that would have been a mistake. Okay. You know, you think back to, well, some of the movies that we've even reviewed on this podcast and are going to review. Yeah. uh, And and other, other movies that I put in the, you know, great 
but not so great action movies. I think of you know Rambo two and Rambo three, for sure. example. I think you could say uh, Commando a little bit with this movie too. Commando, yeah. uh, you know, these are all movies that I love, which you know at the time they're released, I think are critically panned because <laughs> right. they're not the piano. Uh, but, <laughs> but what is? <laughs> that's right. It's not snow falling on cedars. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, you don't need that. What you need to know is that there's a good guy and that there's a bad guy. Right. And that there's some place they have to go and there's some things that need to explode. Right. Uh, originally, this movie was not The Expendables. In the mid uh, in mid-2005, a writer, uh, David Callahan, handed in a script for a movie called Barrow to Warner Brothers. And the script for Barrow somehow landed on Sylvester Stallone's desk and he decided... Yep, this is the Expendables. You know, so he jumped in with his typewriter and started uh, adding his own little story to this, and that's I, what became the Expendables. I feel like you're a little disdainful, and I can tell from the tone of your voice <laughs> of Sylvester Stallone's screenwriting. And I don't think no, I think he's I don't actually... think that's fair, Cameron. Okay, and why is that? Because he's written a lot of great movies. Yes, Oscar nominated for the first Rocky. Uh, which yeah. he won Best Picture for? Well, he didn't win anything, but... <laughs> well, everyone wins. <laughs> everyone wins, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when is the Best Picture? Sure. So, I mean, Stallone wrote all three Rambo movies. He wrote, sure. I, I think, all... Four. All four Rambo movies. <laughs> right, all four, sorry. Yeah. Uh, he wrote all... I think all of the Rocky movies. Certainly right. the first five, I believe. He didn't write Creed, but yeah. And then he also wrote, you know, some of his lesser hits you know he wrote cobra driven uh a lot of other stallone vehicles over the top did he write over the top he did yes <laughs> i didn't know that <laughs> I think i'm not surprised like i am a huge lover of the rocky and rambo movies not so much driven but uh i think the thing about stallone is that he's a very inconsistent writer and i think when he's on point he can deliver like I, I don't think his scripts are busy. I think he's really good at honing them down, like, say, Rambo in 2008. But uh, this one, to me, I think he struggles a little bit with juggling characters. And I feel like when he comes, when he's jumping over to the villain stuff, he's just, like, uh, he's just not that interested in it. And it feels very, like, take just the, the most generic elements and just fill those in for the villain because he's so busy kind of coming up with his own character arc because there's really only two character stories in this movie and that's his and uh, Jason Statham's character. Well, there I think there's a well, lot of I uh, guess Dolph Lundgren as well. I think there's a lot of character stories in this oh, are there? Okay. film. They just don't all happen on screen. Should we just dive into the cast in general? Uh we, maybe we should. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we have uh Sylvester Stallone mm -hmm. who I guess his character arc is he had to go somewhere and uh for a woman and then come back. Well, it was that old trope. He had to be redeemed by a woman. Yeah, it <laughs> was. It he was like a damaged soul. It wasn't clear what he was being redeemed from. Well, it seems like the Expendables have a really bad past of just doing horrific things and just attaching themselves to nothing. And so I guess this was him being redeemed by finally caring about someone or something. That's right. And I guess Jason Statham, he had to... Wait, wait a second. Is the Barney Ross character arc... The exact same as the Rambo 2 character arc or the Rambo 3 character arc? I'm pretty sure it is. <laughs> Maybe this is just, this movie's just, it actually probably is. I mean, this is actually probably what Sylvester Stallone was thinking when he made this movie. Sure. Was, man, I'd love to do Rambo again. Right. And I might as well make this movie. It's like Rambo, but with a little bit more dialogue. Right, yeah. Um, Did you like Stallone in this movie? 
I thought he was uh, he was pretty good. He, yeah. You know, he was again reliable, like most of the people in this movie. I mean, this movie isn't everyone in this movie is kind of an old hat. Sure. Um, I found Stallone. I don't know that he ever finds this character. Like, I think he's great playing both Rambo and Rocky. I think he really has great angles to tackle those characters. I don't know that he ever found his way into what makes Barney Ross an individual worth following. Like, he doesn't feel like he has a really interesting personality to me, like the other two do. Yeah, I mean, he's pretty one-dimensional. He is, yeah. But do you really want to... Do you really want to read Barney Ross's diary? <laughs> kind of. <laughs> actually, I'd rather read Mickey Rourke's. But what about Jason Statham? Because I actually think Jason Statham might be the highlight of the movie. Yeah, I mean, Jason Statham's here. He's at his, he's at his snarliest, growliest best, yeah. uh, throwing a lot of knives. Yes. I think Jason Statham is often best when you put him in an uh, ensemble. I think, you know, the Fast and Furious movies proved that, as well as um, the Italian job. He's really fun in that movie. Well, for that matter, Snatch and Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels. Definitely, yeah. Or the movie Cellular, which is this kind of forgotten 2004 thriller that's actually pretty entertaining. Um, but uh, this movie, I love that, you know, because he doesn't have to carry the movie, he's allowed to be fun. And I often feel Jason Statham is not fun. I think he's fun a lot. I mean, yeah, I guess he's in the Crank movies and the Transporter, but I'm thinking more of movies like Safe or uh, Killer Elite. Like, movies like that, he often feels a little more like he's just got to play it brooding and kind of just gritty. Or the Mechanic movies. Right, which are not good. Uh, I don't think I saw the first one, but the second one was not good. <laughs> Tommy Lee Jones is amazing in the second one, though. I would actually recommend people watch The Mechanic too. Purely for Tommy Lee Jones, who shows up and just phones it in like a madman for 15 minutes. <laughs> I'd recommend against watching The Mechanic 2 if you have okay. anything else to watch. But to me, this movie, it just seems like he's having fun. And I actually think he uh, establishes really great banter with Stallone. Now, the dialogue is another question, but I actually think the two of them have a lot of energy together. And I buy these two characters as having known each other. Now, how about the other characters? What did you think of Jet Li's character? Oh dear, poor Jet Li. Now, the rumor was Jet Li had a miserable time making this movie and really didn't even like working with these guys at all. And I think if you watch The Expendables 2 that you can see that was probably the case because he's gone in the first like five minutes. Um, Jet Li playing the character Yin Yang, um, his character is basically two things. Being ridiculed for being short and saying he needs money. <laughs> And the reasons why he says he needs money never really become clear. He says he needs money for his son and his family. It eventually comes out that he doesn't have a family. And that's all you ever hear about it. Yes. It's interesting that at one point he says, don't ask, don't tell. Which pays off in the third film. Which I guess we'll get to later down the road. But I mean, um, the thing about the Jet Li character is that I feel like Jet Li the actor just... I can feel that like, he doesn't really want to be there. He doesn't seem like he's having much fun. And to be fair, the movie is also not giving him a lot of great stuff. Jet Li is such a talented acrobatic performer that I never felt like I really got to see Jet Li do cool stuff. Yeah, and this is something that it, one criticism I have of the movie and of the way they use the ensemble cast. If, if you look at most ensemble movies, uh, you look at the classics, you know, Magnificent Seven or sure. Dirty Dozen. Dirty Dozen. Uh, the char the characters in those movies, they all have uh, maybe not the best character development, but they all have a very defined role or piece in the movie. Right. Right. So you do have that to some extent in this film where you have 
Terry Crews is pretty much there as the heavy weapons guy. But, uh, you know, Jet Li would be the natural choice as, you know, the kung fu martial artist. Or, and, or like a stealth operative who can really sneak in and out very well. That's right. But in this film, you know, I mean, Dolph Lundgren also doubles as the heavy weapons guy. Every, yeah. Everybody seems to be using knives and throwing knives, which... Very well, too. Very well. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, in an action movie... I find, anyways, characters are often defined. You know, they become their weapon, or they become what their what their tactical gear is, rather right. than their backstory. Yeah. And yeah, Jet Li. I mean, he did have some fight scenes, but they weren't particularly martial arty. Like you, like you. I don't. I don't think martial arty is a word. But no. Uh, but but you know what I'm saying. And they weren't very well directed either. Like I just don't think Stallone as a director has a great eye for martial arts combat. No, no. You could tell there was like a lot of cuts going on. And a lot of stunt doubles working their way in, and just weird angles. But but you know what? Let's let's get through this. How about, yeah, Dolph, yeah. How about Dolph Lundgren? Dolph Lundgren, I think, is an absolute blast in this movie. And I, I am glad that he got the role over Van Damme. Um, I think Van Damme is more fun in the sequel. I think Dolph Lundgren is just the right side of insane in this movie. Where you see him in the uh, opening, uh, where they're taking down like a ship of uh, Somalian pirates. And he's like blowing a guy's entire top torso off with a shotgun. And trying to hang a Somalian pirate. And then he's like, hey, I got problems, man. I got problems. Yeah, he reminded me a little bit of... I mean, he hadn't been in a movie, at least not a theatrical release, since Johnny Mnemonic in, like, 95. Yeah. So, I mean, this is 15 years out for him. Right. But he reminded me a lot of his role in, you know, like, Red Scorpion or Universal yeah. Soldier. Yeah. Or even uh, Army of One, if you ever saw that. Sure. But those those were all... I mean, Dolph Lundgren never really hit the heights I think he deserved in the action world. But uh, those were all kind of, I think, iconic roles for him. And he, he really recaptured that here as being a little bit, little bit off kilter. He's one of the few that feels like he's trying to play a character. Yeah. Like, I feel like the rest are trying to play just their, their own personas to a certain degree. Except Jet Li. <laughs> Except Jet Li, who's just trying to get out. <laughs> like, I feel like there's a certain meta-narrative to this film. Every time he says, I'm just here for the money, that's Jet Li <laughs> telling himself, I really need the money. I really need the money. Was, I gotta get through this. That was all ad-libbed. <laughs> <laughs> there's a scene... Okay, I know I'll forget about this later, so I'll mention it now. There's a scene later in the film... Uh, right before, I believe, the car chase with Dolph Lundgren's character, where Jet Li's in the car talking to Sylvester Stallone's character about how he needs the money for his family that doesn't exist. And then it just cuts back to Jet Li in this one, this single take, and he's just like, I really need the money. <laughs> and it's yes. the most weird, repetitive like sequence of dialogue of him just like repeating the same thing like five times in a row. Very weird, but but no, like Lundgren, I think is maybe having the most fun of the cast, and I think he's a blast. And maybe we should roll them in into one since we've spent quite a bit of time on this already. Sure. But how about Randy Couture and Terry Crews? <laughs> okay, Terry Crews, incredibly charismatic guy, not working with much. He mostly just talks about his gun, uh, and I guess he's fun in that do in doing that little bit of business, but he doesn't have a lot to do. Um, Let's just. What do you think of Terry Crews before we get to Randy Couture? Uh, again, like Jet Li, and to some extent, like uh, Dolph Lundgren. Yeah. Um, and for that matter, like a lot of the actors in this film, didn't really have a lot to do. No. Uh, you know, but what he did, I thought he did pretty well. He did it just fine. Yeah, he's very lively in the action sequences. Uh, Terry Crews is just an awesome actor in general, so he's always welcome, and I think he's fun here. But Randy Couture. 
Um, wow. Uh, words fail to a certain degree. <laughs> yeah, to be honest, I don't want to be too negative about Randy Couture. Uh, you know, I, I I quite like his his mixed martial like his he's yeah. got, got an incredible mixed martial arts career. Definitely. And it's really challenging in this film, just given the nature of the film, to really understand uh, were the problems with Randy Couture, Randy Couture, or were the problems the bizarre lines that he was given to say? Really strange. There is an extended sequence where he talks about his cauliflower ears that is like, I felt like I was hallucinating that entire sequence of dialogue. Like, it's so weird and it comes out of nowhere. Like, it feels like this character is just throwing this out there for no apparent reason. And it's not funny, and it just lands with a thud. Yeah, and, he, and it's not well delivered either. Yeah, I mean, a lot of we'll get to that as yeah. well. But a lot of the uh, lines, the one-liners in this movie, there was a lot of them. Yeah, and a lot of them landed like Terry Crews running into Randy Couture. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel kind of bad for Randy Couture because thud, <laughs> because Randy Couture is not. You know, he doesn't have the long acting career these other guys have. And I don't know that this set would be the friendliest for a newbie. Like, I don't feel like there's a lot of nurturing going on in terms of getting a performance out of an actor. It's just these guys, huge testosterone in the room. Stallone, this veteran director and action star. He's not, like, saying, Randy, you know, really think about what you're saying. You know, try and find the truth in the moment. You know, they're just, like, rolling the camera, like, go, Randy, go. Time is money. I mean, that was one of the bizarre things. Is a lot of what Randy Couture's lines had to do with him being... I guess that was the joke, was that he was sensitive or that he... He was the smart one. Because there's a sequence where he's reading a book. That, <laughs> That's it. He that, was the smart that one. That makes him the smart one? Yes. Which book was it? I, I don't remember. It was uh, a book that looked smart. <laughs> <laughs> it's good enough for this movie. <laughs> like, there is, a, I think, a very obvious... Uh, attempt to try to make him look more as like the intellectual of the group i think he actually is in real life too i think randy couture is actually a really bright guy probably um but i mean it's kind of funny that his character's name is toll road but he shows up at the end wearing a jacket that says milt <laughs> yeah that was strange a lot of randy couture's parts were strange and, and so let's get to the last guy i know yeah. you've been itching to talk about him yeah mickey rourke playing the unfortunately named character tool <laughs> Who has an amazing uh, poem said about yeah, him at the yeah, end. The former expendable, now wisdom dispenser and tattoo artist. <laughs> right. I hope that's my occupational title one day as well. Yeah, something to put on a resume. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, Mickey Rourke. I don't know whether he's horrifically bad in this movie or if he's amazing. I can't even tell. He's blending the two so seamlessly together that I'm just in awe of the performance. Because... He is in his full whiplash makeup from Iron Man 2, which shot the same uh, same kind of time period. And um, he's greasy. He looks like he just crawled out of bed. Or maybe a ditch. I'm not sure which. Um, and he's wearing wardrobe that I like to imagine came out of his own closet. <laughs> and he just gives these long monologues. Or There's a sequence. His first one. Let's just talk about the two. Because the first one is him describing the tattoo he wants to give Jason Statham. And it's this Charlotte's Web thing, but I feel like all of it is improv. And it is the most bizarre improv I can possibly imagine. Yeah, and Mickey Rourke's usually pretty dependable for strange <laughs> improv. But, um, and then what's the second one? The second one is him talking about when he was serving in Bosnia, and there was this woman who was going to jump off a bridge, and how he could have helped her, 
but he didn't. But he should have because it would have been saving a piece of his soul. And that is like, what, like a three or four minute story? Yeah, I, I thought that that scene, they tried to shoot it like they were shooting Brando in Apocalypse Now. It reminded me also a lot of the Indianapolis speech in Jaws. And that you also, just like in Jaws, um, there's a character standing in the background just staring, kind of jaw-dropped, watching this story unfold. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to say this is as good as Robert Shaw's speech in Jaws, but it might be up there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> At least in terms of being memorable, because it's so weird. But I feel like it might be the best thing in the movie. Yeah, you know, it, uh, I'll agree with you. You know, Mickey Rourke, he came to act. Yes! <laughs> you know, and, and Mickey Rourke's a phenomenal actor. He, yeah. I mean, he's a guy, he certainly has had an interesting life. Yeah. At, at times, a very challenging life. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, but, you know, no one can say that he's he, he's a bad actor. You right. Know, some of, his, some of his, his acting is just phenomenal. And two years before this movie, he did The Wrestler, which That's he was right. absolutely amazing in. So. That's right. And, you know, he, he came in, he had uh, a couple knife-throwing scenes, a tattoo yeah. scene, and two monologues. Yeah. And I think he came to deliver those monologues like a Bogart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, that's very accurate. He has a perfect world-weary charm. Like, I would love to watch a movie just about Mickey Rourke telling stories. I think that's a lot of Mickey Rourke movies. <laughs> That's very true. I think Harley Davidson, the or Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man, may have been pretty much that. But I mean, I'm thinking of the movie My Dinner with Andre. I would watch My Dinner with Tool, where Tool just tells stories about his sordid past. Yeah. What do you think of the names? I mean, now that uh, they're pretty lousy. You know, I mean, can you get any more on the nose with uh, the character names? Hail Caesar. Uh, Steve Austin was named Payne, apparently. With an E. With an, with, yeah, <laughs> according to the cast, it was with an E. We got a <laughs> laugh out of that. Uh, Toll Road, Gunnar Jensen, Yin Yang, Lee Christmas, Barney Ross, uh, Schwarzenegger, Trent yeah. Mauser, Mr. Church. These names, they sound like they come out of the board game Clue. <laughs> who fared the best and who fared the worst for name? Well, Mickey Rourke, <laughs> Tool. Like, who? how did that make it past? I feel like Lee Christmas is pretty bad. It's not cool sounding. You know what it always reminds me of is uh, Dr. Christmas. Right. From the James Bond film. Yeah, The World is Not Enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big fan of Lee Christmas. I think Gunnar Jensen is really good. That's a pretty great name. Well, I mean, Barney Ross. Trent Mauser's not bad. Yeah, yeah. As far as action names go. Sure. Now, let's get to the two big cameos of this movie. Schwarzenegger, you know, the, the focus of this podcast... <laughs> As uh, no, well, as, well, not this podcast. <laughs> not so much this one, but <laughs> but this, you know, in the, in the broader, yes. the capital P podcast, right? And Bruce Willis, who as Mister Church, um, much hyped. These two, they have one scene, and it was shot four months after principal photography ended in L.A. I uh, I don't know that it was supposed to be the case early on, and there was a lot of finagling going on. Originally, they wanted Schwarzenegger to play the Bruce Willis character. And then somehow he wound up with his, his this other character, Trench. And then they wanted Kurt Russell to play the Bruce Willis character. And then Kurt Russell apparently was not interested in ensemble acting at this point in his career. Right. Which I think meant he read the script and was like, no. <laughs> but ultimately Bruce Willis came in. Both Willis and Schwarzenegger did the movie for free. And both would have more to do in the sequels. What did you get out of this one scene? 
Well, I don't know about you, because I remember the scene very distinctly from when I went to see it the first time in the theater. Yeah. I remember the first time I saw it being kind of disappointed. Yeah. Uh, I was obviously watching a little bit more closely this time. Yeah. Because, you know, capital P podcast, sure. Ar- Arnie Geddon, <laughs> the world's <laughs> foremost authority in Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. Uh, right after it, Arnold himself. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's nothing in particular wrong with this scene. Yeah. But it does feel a little bit tacked on, don't you think? Yes. It's a scene thrown in there that you can tell you could cut it and it wouldn't matter. Because ultimately, they aren't really delivering any information that really matters. It's Bruce Willis kind of just being shady. And they're like, Mr. Church, you're a shady CIA guy too, right? And he's like, yeah, what are you going to do about it? It's like, okay, sure. Hopefully this pays off in a sequel. It was basically Bruce Willis playing Bruce Willis and Arnold Schwarzenegger playing Arnold Schwarzenegger. I appreciated that it was not like the sullen, depressed Bruce Willis I get in most movies these days, like the Death Wish remake. But, I mean, he's fine. But Schwarzenegger was the one that you can tell, even in that scene, that they cared a lot more about. The way his character enters in this beacon of light behind him through church doors, the kind of the walk down the uh, down the aisle. But ultimately, he's mostly just here to do exposition and explain that he used to be an expendable, but he's not anymore. But the, he doesn't like Barney Ross. But the exposition doesn't have really anything to do with the movie itself. No, that's the thing. You could cut that scene, it wouldn't matter. That's why I feel like they just shoehorned it in there to get those two stars. Well, I guess they needed to have uh, an initial reason for... Uh, the expendables to go to the south american island nation of valena <laughs> i hear it's nice this time of year beautiful beautiful yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean i guess so but it does feel like you could have just had this this information conveyed in like one line of dialogue or something like that you could have had uh, stallone open an envelope and sure. just yell at everyone we're going to valena boys right yeah yeah but ultimately does the scene justify itself like is it a fun scene well, I think it's good to have in the movie. I mean, at the time, you know, uh, Willis and Schwarzenegger were still action heavyweights that hadn't done too much in a while. Yeah, Schwarzenegger had been out of the game for a while because of his uh, governorship. Yeah, that's right. He was doing politics yeah. at the time. I think he was doing still in politics at the time this was released, wasn't he? <sighs> he might have been, yeah. I mean, he had done cameos in The Rundown. As well as Terminator Salvation. Around the world in 80 days. Yeah, so, he, you know, he was a busy guy still at this point. He was not quite moving back into acting. But this was sort of, I think, testing the waters a little bit. And I, I think when they brought him into this movie, there was always the belief that if there was a sequel, he would play a larger role. At least I get that sense. I'm not too sure. I'm not too sure if they if they thought there was going to be a sequel on this. Yeah, well, it's it was a little bit of a gamble. Because the movie um, cost $82 million. And it grossed $103 million domestically, which isn't spectacular. It was 28th for the year, sandwiched in between Chronicles of Narnia, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and Due Date, that Robert Downey Jr. comedy. So it, it was not a big hit. The, the top three that year were Toy Story 3, Alice in Wonderland, and Iron Man 2. You can see Disney was already taking over the world in 2010. Um, but... Uh, you know, Expendables, where it was really saved was internationally, where it made $171 million, you know, overseas. And so in that sense, this you really see the overseas market beginning to gain steam at this point in time. And that really would justify each of the Expendables movies, more so than domestic gross. Right. And so I think having Arnold in there just made a lot of sense. I think it's great just to throw in marketing for international. And it obviously worked. But the movie was a bit of a gamble. 
And I don't know that it was a safe bet of, yeah, there's going to be sequels to this movie. Now, how much more money do you think this movie made because Arnold Schwarzenegger and Bruce Willis were in it? That's an excellent question. Because, yeah, you throw them in trailers. I think people get excited more so about seeing Schwarzenegger, Stallone, and Willis in one movie than just seeing Stallone in a movie. Yeah, well, it's better than seeing them all in one restaurant. Sure. (laughs) I think Planet Hollywood was still a going concern at this time. (laughs) They were starting to demolish it even as the movie was opening. Their beef dip was apparently to die for. (laughs) Did you ever go to Planet Hollywood? No, I didn't. I have stood outside the Planet Hollywood Casino in Las Vegas, but I've never been inside one. But, uh... (laughs) that's that's not the best story you've ever told (laughs) no it's not it's not but um but uh it's not the worst though to your no that's quite true yeah anyway so this is kind of the restaurateur trio yes reunited for all planet hollywood fans and i think all the fans of the restaurant were like i gotta see that movie now if it's if it's like their beef dip (laughs) i gotta see this movie it's divine (laughs) yeah um i think just throwing them in a trailer kind of tricked people into going to this movie to a certain degree. I think, you know, it was very clear to me when I saw trailers that Schwarzenegger wasn't going to be in it much because he was in no other scenes in the trailer. But I think a lot of average moviegoers would have been more likely to have been tricked into going for that. And uh, I don't know if they're disappointed. You know, each Expendables movie from this point forward made less and less money domestically, so maybe they were. Maybe it didn't really pay off in that regard, but it got them into this one in reasonable numbers. Yeah, I mean, I think I probably would have gone to see the movie anyways. Yeah, me too. You know, there was enough enough names and enough bullets flying that it was the kind of movie that I generally go see. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, uh, like Jason Statham doesn't bring the box office bucks that like Schwarzenegger does in terms of their filmographies. Well, I think at this time, though, I mean, Jason Statham was probably one of the, if not the, top action star at the time. He was a very, very dependable action star and still is. Yeah, he wa- he definitely was and, and still is. But um, action movies just at this point in time were making less money than they did in the Arnold days where in his prime, like, you got a lot of those movies making huge money. At least the classic style of action yeah. movies were, which, which this was. Um, but you were still seeing, uh, I think at the, around this time you were starting to see the uh, superhero action starting to make a lot more money definitely definitely um now let's just briefly touch on the villains uh i don't know that the villains are have really that much to do um but you have um eric roberts playing at the rogue cia agent and his uh, henchman steve austin and uh, as well as uh david zayas as the general garza who's like the puppet dictator but uh eric roberts interesting casting i remember actually being excited when he got cast because He's definitely a straight-to-video guy in general, and I like the idea of bringing him into this world, this you know big-screen, huge action movie, because it feels like kind of a throwback to the 80s. Um, originally, they wanted Robert De Niro for the role, as well as Al Pacino. That's ambitious. And Ben Kingsley, and then Ray Liotta, and then they landed on Eric Roberts. You know, actually, that's one thing about this movie that re- really draws things into light is... How much influence must Sylvester Stallone have in Hollywood in order to bring all these together and in order to even think that he can get uh, Al Pacino and Robert De Niro in on a movie like this? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. But how did you enjoy them as villains? You know, Eric Roberts, I, I love Eric Roberts. I think right. he's he's great in almost everything that he does. Uh David Zayas, I felt a little bit bad for him. Yeah. He really was given 
no character. He was given... Yeah. <laughs> you, you couldn't have a more archetypal character just delivering the most predictable lines imaginable. And yeah. he, he he really gave it his all, but he, he came off as being not particularly convincing or threatening at any point in the movie. No, no. And Stone Cold Steve Austin? I mean, he, he didn't really have much to do, but what he did, he did a like only stone cold steve austin can do yeah i thought he was a good physical presence in the movie he's just kind of your silent heavy for the most part but uh i enjoyed eric roberts he's definitely got the smarm you know dialed up to 10 now or, uh, dialed up to 11 i should say now what did you think of the fight between one steve austin and sylvester stallone and two steve austin and Randy Couture. Okay, that's a good segue, actually, because I want to move into the action element, because I think that's what you're going to this movie for, is the action. Mm -hmm. um, I actually think the Stallone-Steve um, uh, Austin fight is okay, but I think it's actually worsened by being intercut as well with fights between uh, Gary Daniels and Jet Li, and a lot of scenes of Jason Statham shooting and stabbing guys. And it just gets a little too busy. Like, I felt like it was taking away the momentum of the fight. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And that's a bit of an issue I found, anyways, with this movie generally. Mm -hmm. uh, the the cuts were just a little too short yeah. in the action and a little too shaky for it to be really coherent in a lot of places. Yeah, like, it works better when Stallone is doing smaller scale action. Like, there's a scene when Stallone's character is meeting up with the uh, female contact, uh, Giselle Itier, um, who's the daughter of this puppet dictator, and he's with her in like a field, and a bunch of soldiers pull up, and then Stallone and Jason Statham have to take out these soldiers. That's a smaller scale action scene. I actually like the stuff like that more than I do, or the Somalian pirate sequence at the start. I like those more than I like the big blowout stuff at the end where it's like intercutting between like a dozen different characters doing like just random chaotic things. Yeah, I I thought my favorite action sequence in the movie, I don't know about you, um, was probably the plane scene. Oh, <laughs> yeah, okay. Shortly after, shortly after they've just had that scene that you've just described yeah. uh, with Jason Statham crawling into the nose of the plane, which they've apparently set up for just such an occasion. Sure. And uh, then, What is that? That's the ride and die maneuver. Yeah. That's right, ride and die. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, not only shooting up all of the uh, military personnel remaining on the dock, but also uh, napalming them with gasoline. And yeah. then Jason Statham, I don't know how you would do this, shooting a flare gun from the nose of a moving plane that's moving away from the target. <laughs> And shooting from about, you know, probably uh, 300 yards off at yeah. least uh, a flare gun onto this dock and, and blowing everyone up except uh, Eric Roberts and Steve Austin. Yeah, who dive into the water, fortunately. None of their so, men figure that one oh, out. Oh, thank, thank goodness. <laughs> and what I really liked following both of those scenes was they gave us a death count. You yeah, 41. Yeah, you never get a death count in these movies. But you have Eric Roberts... Uh, saying, how could two men kill 41 of ours? And you're like, well, that that answers my question. I like that they didn't keep it a round number like 40 they or 45. You know, it's like they went with 41. Yeah, they A did. number just specific enough, you're like, well, he must be telling the truth. Yeah, he, they, he must have counted. <laughs> he cared. He didn't say he killed about 40 of our men. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Maybe that ties into his characters like a very exact, manipulative uh, type. You know, maybe that works. I think so. Yeah. But no, I agree. That plane sequence is actually pretty strong. Um, 
I think Stallone is generally, though, a really good action director. I think he delivers something that very few do nowadays, and that he has real impact shots of, like, people die in horrible ways, and you get, like, that kind of, that real hard-hitting death sequences strewn throughout this movie, like corpses. Yeah, there was there was definitely a lot of... Uh... A lot of red on screen. Yeah, knives through the ear and all sorts of horrific. A, a, a lot of yeah. a lot of limbs bending the wrong way. Yes, and he's really good at that. He did that very well in the 2008 Rambo as well. And you know, it's kind of a bummer that he would not direct the other two Expendables movies because I do feel like I don't know that I ever appreciated how much he brought to the action sequences when I was watching, say, two and three. But revisiting part one, I suddenly began to go, oh boy, I think the action was better in this one than the other two. Yeah, now, here's a question for you, Cam. Which, I mean, this movie made ample use of both practical effects with squibs and explosions and stuff like that. Right. And also CG. Yeah. How did you find that blend? Okay. I think the practical stuff is great. I love that they blew up lots of stuff in this movie. There's vehicles and that bridge you mentioned. There's a lot of fire going on. However, there is also a big fight, you know, we should touch on the fight between Randy Couture and Steve Austin, um, which is not as intercut as the Stallone-Steve Austin fight. Um, that one is okay. It's staged fine. Uh, it's very dark. I, I don't like how the finale is all dark. But then they are rolling around in fire, and Steve Austin... It's amazing how dark it is, given that they're rolling around in fire. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. But uh, Steve Austin rolls in fire... And then is lit a flame. I guess he was bathed in gasoline, or maybe he was just wearing synthetic fabric. Maybe he was wearing Gore-Tex. Sure, <laughs> it's uh, it's not clear from the film. <laughs> that was his character quirk that was cut from the film. Yeah, he was a North Face rep, <laughs> um, <laughs> Mr. Payne <laughs> of North Face. Maybe um, well, it didn't specify in the cast. Maybe Payne was his first name. <laughs> What's his last name? Johnson. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> or anything. You have to sure. use your imagination. That's sure. the, that's the beauty of cinema. But that C that CG fire that he goes up in, um okay, first off it doesn't look good, but I will say it looks better on a TV at home than it did on the big screen. Because I remember it looking horrible on the big screen. Yeah, I don't I don't remember about that scene in particular on the big screen, but there were a, a few scenes um yeah, especially things in the background where they're doing the demolition of the building. Right. Where there's, you can tell there's practical effects in the foreground and yeah. then digital effects in the background. Yeah. Same thing with a lot of the... Um, like the, more, the digital blood. Is the, more, the more visceral stuff. You can yeah. tell they're using a mix of squibs and, uh, and digital blood. Right. Which I don't have anything against, but it, it looks a lot more in some places. Not everywhere. Like a lot of the action's done very well, but in some places you can really notice, and it looks a lot more like uh, the action you might see on television, sure, than than in a than a big screen film. You have to wonder how much of that CG budget too was compromised by just having eighty two million dollars to work with. Once you pay for all that cast, the settings, all that sort of stuff, I feel like they probably didn't have much money to have good CG. And like I remember the scene at the end, uh, Eric Roberts' death, where he gets impaled with the knife through his chest. I remember the knife looking terrible in uh, in theaters. Like it looked like a CG knife coming through him. Uh, at home, it looked better. Yeah, which raises the question, I guess, in a, in a movie like this, wouldn't it? Even though it might not have had quite the same amount of blood, yeah, 
would the audience have minded if it was all practical effects or mostly practical effects right. or if the digital effects weren't quite so obvious? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know if anyone beyond sort of those of the 80s really cared about whether they were seeing CG blood or not. I don't know. Um, it it definitely annoyed me. Uh, but it's tough to say. Do you think the general audience really cares? You know, that that I don't know. I know, yeah. I, I know that I've noticed it. You've yeah, noticed yeah. it. But in some ways, I mean, we're... The I've seen t- more offensive. Like, it drove me more nuts when I saw the... Uh, Unrated, live free or die hard. Uh, yeah, I, I found in Carnosaur, I really didn't like. Carnosaur. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned for that podcast. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I loved Schwarzenegger's cameo in that one. Carnosaur cast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Carnosaurenegger. <laughs> Now that's a crossover. Why didn't Carnosaur come into like Expendables Four? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I I don't know why Carnosaur. Anyways, we shouldn't get too far down the Carnosaur road. It's hard, but I can uh, pull myself back. We've been down this road before, not <laughs> too many times. Not, not, not <laughs> never online. And I don't. You know, I if we want to keep this under two hours, sure. Okay. Sure. Now let's talk a little bit about just the throwback nature of this film it's obviously very present in the action and its storytelling which is very kind of generic 80s action movie um but it's also very um yeah, throwbacky in the way it writes for example the female roles uh throwback is one word yeah. for it <laughs> uh, yeah stallone is not he, he hasn't written a lot of strong female leads in this film i would say he wrote some pretty good stuff for Adrian in his Rocky movies, um, but it was inconsistent. I know he also put her in a coma for Rocky too, so you know it was hit or miss, I guess. Um, but he was capable of writing a decent female character, but here he's not even trying. Like they are afterthoughts. The the character played by Giselle Etier, um, who's the daughter of the dictator, who sort of redeems S- uh, Sylvester Stallone. She's there. To redeem Sylvester Stallone. Her only purpose, she she literally spends 15 minutes just being pulled around. Waterboarded. By air, yeah, the waterboarding. Yeah. Um, you know, threatened with rape. Yeah. And then being pulled around by Eric Roberts with one hand. Yeah. Um, and why was he pulling her? Uh, <laughs> we mentioned that we, we talked about this when we saw, we were watching it. Cam and I, we noticed, you know, at this point in the film, what does Eric Roberts, why does he want anything to do <laughs> With this woman. Especially like a rogue CIA guy. Wouldn't he just want to sneak off into the shadows somewhere? You'd think so. Yeah. Now, like, I'd even leave Steve Austin behind. Yeah, just another head scratch. Well, it depends. Yeah. Maybe they were. Maybe they went back to college or something like that. <laughs> they took economics together? <laughs> yeah, you know. They're in a study group or something. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, and then, um, and then Charisma Carpenter. Her, Oof. Yeah. You know, I mean... Can you get any more? Uh, can you get any more savvy when you know? Yeah, you this know, character is a huge issue in this movie. Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it's a huge issue. It's just not. You know, does, well, certainly doesn't add anything to the um, to the hall of female heroism. This is a woman devoid of agency, and that when we first meet her, Jason Statham is showing up at her door. And he's been gone for who knows how long. One month. Yeah, one month. And he's annoyed she didn't just wait for him. And, you know, it's like, oh my god. Like, 
this this poor woman who's you know in her prime is ready to move on with her life because this guy's disappeared so she's with this other guy turns out he's a complete psychopath as well this woman obviously makes very poor choices but like you know this guy ends up beating her up and jason statham's like you should have waited for me and it's like that's like the lesson she should have waited for jason statham for what? For this mercenary who disappears well, at once at a time? Well, don't for, don't forget he he also mentions that he's not perfect, but yeah. but he, but he's good. Sure, um, it's it's, a, it's an embarrassing role, and it's ultimately you know she's again beaten up by this random boyfriend guy who I don't think had a name, but then Jason Statham has to go and beat up the boyfriend for her while she kind of just stands in the background passively. Yeah, it's it's not what I would call empowering. No, it is not. And I also had a funny thought. So. You know, how old do you think the guy she's dating beyond Jason Statham? How old would you say that guy is? I have no idea. Like, rough age. Do you think maybe 40? Um, I'd guess 35. 35 or 40? Yeah. I, like, he looks a little older to me. He looked around 40. But we'll say 35, 40. Um, there's a scene later in the film where Jason Statham goes, and this guy is playing basketball with a bunch of his friends, I guess. And they're all like, we got your back against Jason Statham. Who is this 35, 40-year-old with all these other 35, 40-year-olds who are like, yeah, let's let's take it to the streets? Well, I mean, obviously... Do none of these guys have lives? Well, they do. They, uh, <laughs> at least at least one of them, um, you know, dates uh, women and abuses them, sure. apparently, and then they play basketball. That's the extent <laughs> of all of these characters. And, and apparently, they, they, for whatever reason, they want to fight Jason Statham. I guess he is pretty confrontational. Sure, but if you can find a group of 35 to 40-year-old guys who are willing to jump into a fight at this point in their lives... <laughs> who, I don't know. I, I play 30-plus men's hockey league. Yeah. And let me tell you, things heat up in Division 13. <laughs> yeah, it's just a very strange scene, I think. And uh, Yeah, no, it, it is strange. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> I, I think that, uh, you know, the important thing here is uh, Charisma Carpenter yeah. uh, and... I don't even know how you'd say her. Giselle Etier. Yeah. Um, and are there any other women in this movie? There's well, there's the woman that Mickey Rourke smacks on the butt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> not not exactly the holy trinity of... Um, no. Yeah, you, you know I, what I'm saying. I know there's talk about in uh, a spinoff movie called Expenda Bells, which is all women. And I don't think these three will be showing up in it. <laughs> I, I don't think so either. I don't yeah. think that movie's going to get made. I don't either. I don't think so either. I can't see it. Um, so, you know, let's just talk generally about the film. Um, we've kind of looked at the pieces. Do, how do they hold together to you? Do you feel like this is like a cohesive film or is it a movie you enjoy in parts? I mean, it's fairly incoherent throughout most <laughs> of it, but, you know, not unpleasantly so. Can you tell me the villain's plot? Yeah, he... Okay. <laughs> I sure can. Sure. Uh, Eric Roberts, playing CIA agent... James Monroe. Yeah. He went rogue on the CIA and he now lives on this island. Yes. I'm not, I can't remember how he got there, but he's hooked up with David Zayas. Yeah. General Garza. Yeah. And he's trying to grow cocaine. Sure. And the cocaine isn't growing fast enough. Yes. So he's getting General Garza's. Yes. To threaten peasants. <laughs> yes. To, to make the cocaine grow faster. That 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 I think that's literally what this guy's uh, plan is. How does that work? You know, cocaine, like any plant, if you threaten it and beat it, <laughs> uh, it grows fast. So the, all the peasants will be out there punching the ground. Yeah, I'm not sure what the, what his plan was, but he he's very upset that the cocaine isn't growing fast enough, and he's he tells General Garza, you know, 
get your farmers out here, make these coca plants grow. I, I mean, I guess maybe they weren't watering it or something. It's not clear. <laughs> they needed a botanist, maybe. Yeah, my horticulture is not really up to snuff. <laughs> There's an amazing scene, though, involving the peasants and this character where um, Barney Ross and Lee Christmas are just going there on recon to this island. And um, they're just like on the street. And suddenly Eric Roberts and Steve Austin just pull up and start flipping fruit carts and picking on villagers. And it's like, boy, it's a good thing that these two characters were hanging out here at this very moment. Yeah, there was a lot of that, actually. And then later on in the film, I don't know if you've known it, you noticed they had the, uh, a lengthy car chase through the streets. Yeah. And there was just no end to the number of fruit carts yeah. and chicken trucks. Bales of hay. That were moving back and forth across these streets, seemingly yeah. without a care of, of what was barreling down the streets uh, yes. towards them. Yeah, no. So, you know, to me, the movie is like one of those movies that works and fits and starts. I could never find myself getting absorbed in the story of Expendables. But there's enough distractions. It's almost wall-to-wall distractions through the movie that just keep me going, oh, wait, what's going to happen now? Because... You know, whether it's an action scene, whether it's Mickey Rourke spewing random stories, there's always something happening. Or the banter. The banter, my God. The banter in this movie is so insane that I feel like it's either so smart that I'm stupid, or it's so stupid that I'm too smart to get it. And I'm not confident in which answer it is. Yeah, well, I'm not either. I'm in the same boat. Yeah. I mean, I have a suspicion. These characters, <laughs> these characters seem to think it's funny. So, yeah, who, who am I to question? I mean, the the jokes you just think when you're spending uh, when you're spending eighty two million dollars on something, the jokes are free. <laughs> that's right. You know, I mean, these scripts go through rewrite after rewrite after rewrite, and it's not just this movie, of course. But sometimes I do have to wonder when they when they sat down before spending. The next seventy-five million dollars. Yeah. Did they really decide that this is the funniest <laughs> line we can come up with? You know yeah. when, uh, you know when T- Terry Crews blows everyone up in the room yeah. and says, "You know, remember that at Christmas." And I was like, "Is he referring to Jason Statham?" Yeah. Or when uh, when Steve Austin says to uh, Sylvester Stallone, "You know who sent you?" And right. Sylvester Stallone says. Your hairdresser. <laughs> you know, is that really the best line that you could put in at that point? You, you you don't think you could, you know, hire some professional comedian or, you know, just put a few feelers out on Fiverr and get a better joke than that? There's a really weird one, actually, that you and I both laughed at for the wrong reasons, I think. And that Bruce Willis, when he's meeting with uh, Stallone and Schwarzenegger, makes this really homophobic joke about the two of them. And you and I laughed at the sheer awkwardness of it because it was just like, oh my god. <laughs> but it just like falls flat. And the two actors that he says it to just like stare blankly back at him. <laughs> yeah. It's so weird. There's a lot of weird weird lines like that. Yeah. And a lot of the dialogue is shot very strangely as well. I think the weirdness is what makes this movie work though. Because this movie came out the same year as Machete, which I think I'm... You know, Machete is a movie I was, I think, maybe maybe a little bit more excited for, maybe? And I think liked less than this movie. I think it's Machete. Machete, yes. <laughs> but, I mean, Steven Seagal refused to appear in this movie because he didn't like the people he'd be working with. But he, he did Machete. Uh, or Machete. 
and uh, <laughs> and um, I think people are pretty ambiguous on the pronunciation. Sure, I think so too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, like to me, I think this is the more fun movie than Machete. I think Machete is trying so hard to be quirky and you know, waka waka waka. We're so funny and weird. Whereas this movie, I feel like the weirdness, a lot of it is unintentional. Yeah, well, don't get me long, wrong. I I thought Machete was also a really fun film. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's it's tough to tell whether they're intending to make it weird or whether they just kind of don't care, or they just don't get it. Like they just aren't tapped into. Or we how to write dialogue. Or and here's here's the the part that worries me. Or we just don't get it. Right. I think Stallone works best traditionally, though, when you look at the movies he's written, you know, whether it's Rambo or Rocky, they are characters who don't speak a lot. Or Driven, or Cliffhanger. I'm not... Well, I, Cliffhanger I love. I'm a huge Cliffhanger fan. Cobra? But, Cobra I like, too. But, um, you know, when you look at the jokes he's putting in the Rocky movies, they're usually out of Rocky, and they are supposed to be bad. Whereas, right. I feel like the jokes in this movie are not supposed to be bad. At least I don't think so. I don't know. Jason Statham ends this movie with this poem about Mickey Rourke's character that, uh, uh, like, what were they thinking? Yeah, or, you know, I mean, given that this is a Schwarzenegger podcast, there, yeah. I mean, there is a scene where, um, you know, where Stallone says, well, what, why don't we have dinner? Yeah. And then Schwarzenegger says, uh, how about in a thousand years? And, St- and Stallone says... Too soon. And then Schwarzenegger leaves. And it's... And then Bruce Willis' character says, you know, what's his problem? And Stallone says, he wants to be president. That's right. Which, I I'm mean, like, does he? Does, uh, does this character genuinely want to be president? Well, I mean, I think that's that's kind of funny, given where Schwarzenegger was at at the time. Well, he makes also a meta joke to Stallone about how he likes playing in the jungle. Which yeah. is obviously a nod to, you know, Rambo 2. Yeah. But by and large, the jokes are pretty flat. Yes. And, um, you know, I mean, maybe if you had a real strong comedic cast here, yeah. you could um, pull it off. But you don't. No. But you got a strong action cast, and that's what carries well, the film. And not only that, but you look at the dialects of a lot of this cast. I would have hated to be a dialogue coach on this movie. Because, you know, whether it's Lundgren... Uh, Schwarzenegger, Stallone, Randy Couture, Steve Austin. <laughs> well, and then David Zayas, Giselle Itier. Jet Li, you know, who's uh, English second language. I mean... Mickey, you... Mickey Rourke. <laughs> Mickey Rourke. Can you imagine being a dialogue coach on this movie? Um, I picture that up and atom, up and atom from uh, The Simpsons. I, I mean, a dialogue coach could make their career on this movie. Yeah. Just like Earl Bowen made his career on Terminator. <laughs> nice callback. <yeah>. Thanks. <laughs> that's a good point. Good point. But yeah, I just had to shake my head. I mean, maybe that's the problem too, is that they're bad jokes delivered by guys who aren't particularly great comedic uh, actors. Yeah. Now, how do you think Earl Bowen would have done in this movie? I think he would have sold it. Okay. Earl Bowen in this movie, uh, if you have to take out one cast member and replace them with Earl Bowen, who is it? And and just for the benefit of our listeners here, if you don't know who Earl Bowen is, he's the uh, psychologist from the Terminator films. If you haven't listened to our Terminator podcast yet, uh, please, by all means, go out and Download it. We we just released it a week or two ago. Yeah, here. that's a really fun episode. Check it out. Although yeah. I have a hard time believing that someone tuning into this podcast 
is jumping to the Expendables episode before the Terminator. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> but who knows? Yeah. So, if okay, if I had to put, take one character out and replace it with Earl Bowen... Yeah. It's got to be Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. Obviously. <laughs> Although he does have sort of that sexy Jason Statham charisma. He does. Or maybe Giselle Etier. Maybe I'd take out Giselle Etier. <laughs> They've got to rescue Earl Bowen? Yeah. Earl Bowen redeems Sylvester Stallone? Earl Bowen playing the daughter of General Garza. Who's like an artist? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay, so let's just sum up our final thoughts on The Expendables. Tony, revisiting The Expendables, what's your takeaway after this viewing? When I first saw The Expendables, when it came out in theaters about 10 years ago here, I was super excited to see it. It had been a long time since we'd had a decent ensemble action flick, and this one had a great ensemble cast. I enjoyed it at the time, and I enjoyed it now, but I enjoyed it despite its flaws, which we've gone over with the the CG and the dialogue and that sort of thing. Right. But uh, I think a few things save it. The the action I think by and large is pretty pretty tight. Right. Especially and, in comparison to a lot of the action movies around in this time period, which are very that hack slash editing to the point of just being incoherent. Mm-hmm. So. The dialogue that's not weird non sequiturs is uh is kind of entertaining. <laughs> I don't know, I'll side with the weird non sequiturs. <laughs> the non sequiturs are kind of entertaining as well. And um I mean we haven't talked about it on the podcast, but for a movie of this nature uh, it was a good length. It was just just over an hour yes, and a half. Yes, that is a good point because we will have some, I think, coming up in the future which are much longer and are of a similar quality level, if not worse. Yeah, I mean, one thing I've noticed, I've watched a lot of movies in my time, is I can sit through almost anything for 90 minutes Yeah, and almost nothing for two and a half hours. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, for me, The Expendables is a movie that has really diminished in my memory over time. I think in the first episode of this podcast, actually, uh, where we talk about what this, you know, what this show will be, we state what movies we're looking forward to revisiting the least, and I named The Expendables trilogy. And I'm kind of backing off of that now after watching this one. Um, I like how this movie is such a meat and potatoes action movie. It has no real pretensions other than just to have likable action heroes be semi-likable on screen (laughs) and just kill people in a plethora of horrific ways and to me that kind of delivers and i think you know the length of it really plays well at home you know you know minus credits like 95 minutes and like 95 minutes of weird dialogue brutal action biker porn and just mickey rourke stories i think this movie holds up pretty good and I'm going to be really, really interested now to revisit Expendables 2 because this one's risen a bit for me. I, I enjoyed this movie. Well, that was that was my next question is, you know, how are you how are you feeling about Expendables 2 and Expendables 3? Personally, I'm looking forward to seeing this movie with a little bit more Schwarzenegger in it. Yes. And talking a little bit more about Schwarzenegger on, on Artie Geddon. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking forward to watching, uh, watching uh, Expendables 2. Because I love Van Damme, and again, as you said, Schwarzenegger has a bigger role. Um, the third one, uh, that that one's PG thirteen. That's the one I think I'm definitely not that excited to revisit. Still, the second one more so. I think I that one I'm looking more more forward to now. I, I I'd agree with you on that, but we'll see. Maybe the second one we'll enjoy so much we'll say the same thing about the third one. We can only see. 
well, maybe we can leave it there. I know that uh, it is a little bit of a segue because we're actually moving from uh, a Stallone movie to uh, a Stallone's ex-wife movie. Right. Yes. Yeah. Next time we'll be talking about 1985's Red Sonja. In which Arnold Schwarzenegger plays the wandering, suspiciously Conan-like bar- <laughs> barbarian, Calador, uh, I believe his name is. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking forward... I thought his name was Nonan. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen Red Sonja. My recollections of it is that it's not quite as good as Conan, but we'll see. And it's only 85 minutes. So uh, make sure that you guys uh, out there... Watch it before uh, before tuning in. Uh, if you if you like the podcast, download some of our earlier episodes. Yeah, uh, we really recommend episodes like The Villain and Pumping Iron. Those episodes are a lot of fun, and I think it's worth checking those movies out. You know, the greatest hits are awesome and all the Terminator, Predator, but you know sometimes it's the quirky ones that make for the really fun podcast as well. Yeah, it's some of those lesser seen movies that uh, so far that we've done that uh, I've had some of the most fun making as well. And the most interesting uh, insights into Arnold Schwarzenegger's development, I think too. Yeah. So, okay, you can also, of course, find us on Twitter, at ArnieGeddonPod. You can also send your thoughts or suggestions or comments to ArnieGeddonPod at gmail.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Cam, V is in violence, Smith. Uh, you can also find me on the Star Trek podcast, Subspace Transmissions. Tony, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me, Tony G, uh, Tony like the name, G like the letter, uh, at arniegeddon.com. And, uh, you know, wherever you happen to be downloading the podcast from, if, if you like the podcast, if you can, uh, give us a five star rating or 10 star or wherever you are, it, uh, really helps us out and uh, helps getting our podcast ranked a little higher. Definitely leave a review for sure. Okay. So we'll be back with Red Sonya. So wait, is he to the rule? 